Recovery Elevator, episode 100. With dating, people would say, well, what do you like to do for fun? And aside from work, I like to drink. That was my only hobby. I, that was just the only thing that ever came to mind. So it's really nice when people ask me that question now, I have answers that don't involve booze. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 28 months. On today's podcast, we've got Trisha. She's from Texas, 35 years old, and has been sober since December 14th, 2016. Just as it was an incredible feeling to hit 100 days in sobriety, it's a pretty cool feeling to have 100 episodes under my belt. At the same time, it doesn't feel like it was that big of a deal. How did I do it? Well, here's the secret. Wait for it. Are you ready? One episode at a time. If when I started the Recovery Elevator podcast, I would have thought all the way at 100 episodes, episode one, it wouldn't have happened. The same thing applies to a life without alcohol. If you're to think about your entire life without alcohol, you're probably not going to get more than a day. But when it comes to making a podcast, if all I'm thinking about is episode one, episode 17, episode 73, and I say, okay, all I need to do is find one interviewee, one alcoholic, one person with a drinking problem. Well, we are everywhere, so that's not that hard to do. All I got to do is find one topic. A lot of interesting stuff out there. So one episode at a time, one day at a time. Eh, well, that's how I did it. How did Third Eye Blind become such an amazing band? Well, probably one note at a time. Yeah, you guys probably saw that one coming. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. The article to where I found this information can be found on recoveryelevator.com, episode 100 in the show notes. Thank you again, Kathy, for doing the show notes. Studies show that drinking problems are increasing, and binge drinking is the problem. Here's why. The United States has been conducting massive national surveys. We're talking like 35 to 40,000 plus Americans, and their drinking patterns every 10 years. Now, one of the main organizations that does this is NSARC, which is the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol-Related Conditions. And NSARC 3 has just released their results, and according to them, the news is bad. Both past-year prevalence of alcohol use disorders, AUDs, and lifetime prevalence have increased significantly. So here's what NSARC found. They found that AUD, that's, that's AUD, alcohol use disorder prevalence among adults 18 years and older, of 14%, or 32.5 million Americans. Wow, to me that number seems huge, the 14% number does. Lifetime AUD prevalence, that's somebody that has struggled with alcohol use disorder once or throughout their lifetime, was just below 30% or 68.5 million people. 
They also found that 8.5% of Americans, and this is just within one year, experienced an AUD. Let me simplify that for you. 8.5% of Americans just in one year would have fallen into the alcoholic category. And it's saying that 30% would fall into that category in a lifetime. Wow. I'm going to explain in just a bit why binge drinking is a leading cause of this. But first off, let's break it down by age category. And the good news is, the older you get, the chances of you struggling with an AUD diminish. That's good, I guess, because I'm getting older. So there is good news here. According to the NESARC, the reason lifetime prevalence is so much greater than the people who experienced this AUD within the past year is because most people overcome their AUDs, alcohol use disorders, with age. And this is despite the fact that only one-fifth of people with an alcohol use disorder, one-fifth of alcoholics, receive any sort of alcohol treatment in their lives. So of those 18 to 29-year-olds, 27% had a past-year alcohol use disorder. Of those 30 to 44 years of age, 16% report that they had an alcohol use disorder in the last year. Of those 45 to 64 years of age, 10%. And those 65 years of older, well, only 2%. Now, the NESARC tracks primarily North America. There's another entity called ECAS that tracks Europe, Northern Europe, and Southern Europe. And there are some pretty crazy findings over there. Apparently, there's a huge difference in the style of drinking from Northern Europe and Southern Europe. Southern Europe, this would be the Mediterranean. France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, etc. They tend to drink differently than countries such as Finland, Norway, Denmark, Russia. Estonia, Latvia, all those above. And I can tell you, from owning a bar in Spain, I did notice that Spanish people don't really drink. They're pretty damn good at moderating their alcohol, which is freaking annoying. As a bar owner, I can tell you, having a bar full of Spaniards was not nearly as profitable as a bar full of Norwegians or people from England or Americans. Man, the people in Southern Europe, they're pretty good at moderating their alcohol and drinking just a couple drinks a night. So the ECAS found alcohol-related mortality was substantially higher in Northern Europe than Southern Europe. We have 18 deaths per 100,000 men in Northern Europe, compared to just 3 deaths per 100,000 men in Southern Europe. Now here is where a wrench gets thrown into this article and podcast episode. The ECAS found that there's an inverse relationship to the amount of drinking. What that means is people drink more in Southern Europe than they do in Northern Europe. But how come in Northern Europe, the death rates are higher? Hmm, the plot thickens, shall we say. Well, in my opinion, and this article does not infer this at all, this is strictly my unprofessional opinion, this is due to binge drinking. I've done a couple podcast episodes, and with the research that I've done, that binge drinking, these episodes are extremely dangerous to our health. After we consume such large quantities of alcohol, our body will break it down and actually place a chemical called THIQ in our brain. This rarely can happen unless we binge drink. When there is a substantial buildup of THIQ, it also becomes substantially more difficult to stop drinking after that first drink. So it's these binge drinking episodes, which turn out to be more frequent with Vikings and those people up in Northern Europe than in Southern Europe, where they're just hanging out in the Mediterranean Sea, eating prawns and drinking their wine. So they drink more in Southern Europe, but they don't binge drink as much as they do in Northern Europe. And that's the issue. And before we hear from Tricia, I want to read what the NESARC had to say for a solution in regards to this rising drinking epidemic. 
the data indicates an urgent need to educate the public and policymakers about alcohol use disorder and its treatment alternatives to destigmatize the disorder and to encourage those who cannot reduce their alcohol consumption on their own despite substantial harm to themselves and others to seek treatment. This, to me, sounds like a verbose way of saying we should continue doing what we've been doing for the last decade or two or four, five or six. I think that would be the definition of insanity. Hmm. All right, Recovery Elevator, let's hear from our interviewee, Trisha. Trisha, how are you? Good, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Trisha, let's get right into this. So when was your last drink? My last drink was one month and two days ago. Boom. 32 days ago. Nice job. How does it feel? Thank you. It feels amazing. I had no idea it would feel this good on so many different levels. It's awesome. Congratulations. 30 days is a milestone for a lot of people. And I could not get 30 days for the life of me before I got sober on September 7th, 2014. Now let's dive into your drinking history, perhaps. When did you first realize that you might, just possibly might not be able to control your alcohol? Was that 33 days ago? Or was that more like a decade ago? You know, I'm 35, and I would say that I knew I wasn't a normal drinker probably by the time I was 20 to 23. So it's been a while, and as it's progressively stayed a problem and then only got to be a really big problem this year... I always knew I was going to have to quit someday. Hmm. I always knew I was never going to be able to be a normal drinker. Planning to quit drinking forever was always part of the plan someday. When did you have that realization, that epiphany that you were going to have to quit drinking someday? I was always so confused. So, okay, I'm a chef and I'm part of the service industry and food and wine is a huge part of my life. And whenever I would be at dinners with people or at parties, I was always so confused by the people who would just have one drink. That didn't make any sense to me. That made, I mean, I've always drank to get drunk. Having one was pointless. Like, why would you even order it? So that was a a big red flag for me. But also, I started noticing that I couldn't just stop when I started. It was something that, like, as soon as I started, I had to drink until I went to bed or passed out. And it's always been like that. So I, you know, I don't know, I guess I realized that most people, when they leave the bar and they're out with their friends, they don't have to go home and keep drinking alone until they go to sleep, which is kind of what I ended up doing most of the time. Trisha, I can definitely relate to that because I also had that same realization probably around 25, 26, when after I started, I found it difficult to near impossible to quit drinking. And for about three, four five years, I thought it was a willpower thing. And ever so often I could shut that down. But I lost that battle 99 out of 100 times if I had more than one drink. And I'm excited because uh, I think podcast 99, episode 99, is going to be just about that. And scientifically, there's a reason. Our bodies digest alcohol differently. And our bodies create a substance called THIQ, which deposits in our brain. We'll get more in-depth in that in the podcast episode. But there is a scientific reason why when we take that first drink, we find it near impossible to stop. And then just like you were talking about, the normal drinkers, you watch them have one drink and you're just like, what the shit are you doing? Keep it going. Yeah. And Trisha, did you ever put any rules in place maybe from ages 23 to about 32 days ago to cut back your drinking or to control it? Yes, all the time. And I always failed. Even when I was in my early 20s, I would go out and I'd say, well, maybe I drink, I'll drink drink less tonight if I order rum and Cokes because I hate rum and I hate Coke. So I thought that would slow me down. That would last a night and I just couldn't get past the taste of it and I'd end up taking shots of something else instead. 
Hey, you know, hang on, I, I got to stop you right there. I, I yeah. love that. And how ludicrous does that really sound if you think about it? I hate the taste of this rum, and I hate Coke. I'm going to buy it probably on like, you know, nine ninety nine rum and Coke night down at your favorite bar. I'm going to pay for these <laughs> drinks that I absolutely despise the taste of. Yeah, and at the, at the time, it seemed just like a great idea. Well, and the funny thing was I would tell my friends and the people I was there with what I was doing, and they would go, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Like when you're around people who have the same problems, it makes sense to everyone. So, you know, I even had the reinforcement from my friends that that was okay to try. Do you think we'd ever do that at a restaurant if we're trying to lose weight? You say, oh, you know, I hate casserole, so I'm going to get the casserole tonight. (laughs) (laughs) It would never happen. No, and the other funny thing about losing weight, I've always been – obsessed with fitness and nutrition is that, yes, I can find a way to fit a bottle of wine into my daily calories and, and, and track it in my macros, but, oh my God, eat a piece of bread. What? Like, it was just like the alcohol always came first. Yeah. Prioritize. I love that. All right. So any other rules you you had, you're like, I'm I'm going to drink the most disgusting drinks in the world that will limit my intake. What else you got? That didn't work. I've tried I'm just going to stick to vodka. I'm just going to have a martini. Okay, I'm never going to have more than two martinis. Okay, if I have two martinis and I want something else, I have to stop, and then I can only have cocktails. It was just these these complicated, dumb rules that really just ended up with a hangover, regardless. Switching back and forth between wine and hard liquor was a big one. Oh, the hangovers hurt so much from vodka, so I'm going to switch to wine for a while. You know, and just the, you know, none of it works. It's... It's completely idiotic, but you have a really powerful way of convincing yourself that it, this is going to work this time. Do you remember the feeling, though, when your brain concocted this like Einstein-like idea of a new way to control your drinking? And it's like, whoa, oh, my God, it's game time. Like, this is totally going to work. And then you put that theory to test and only to just lay it on your ass again. Do you remember that? Yeah. And you know what? It, it's disappointing and you feel so much shame and so bad about yourself when that happens because you failed. You're realizing that this thing is bigger than you are. And it just makes you feel like, you know, a pile of hot garbage in August. I mean, it just, you end up just feeling shameful every time. I love how you said hot garbage because I'm on an adult hockey team and we are called the hot garbage. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Our logo is a dumpster with flames coming out the side. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, like, you know, a dumpster uh, full of garbage in August in Texas is not something you want to be or be around. So, <laughs> yeah, my drinking resulted in many dumpster fires. I can assure you that, Tricia. Oh, wow. I've had to put out dumpster fires because of people like you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm getting off track here, but yeah, one of them actually was a an actual fire in in a porta potty. That was about age uh, age 19. Yeah, the cops the, the cops finalized that night for us, but uh, it was a great time before that. Never really much got into pyrotechnics, but I was always the one who wanted to get everybody drunk around me. You know, like every night it was a Tuesday. We're gonna rage, and I was like the one to you know make sure everybody was getting drunk too. You had like the alliterations for every night of the week. It's Taco Tuesday, everybody. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, we had 40 Tuesday when I was in culinary school, and we would all drink 40s and watch this really dumb reality show that like took place on a cruise ship or something. 40 Tuesday. You know, that's not even catchy. No, it's just, just 40 on a Tuesday. Yeah. Well, I, you could, I was signed up for that, though, at one point <laughs> in my life. And even after 100 episodes, I still have to look at my script. Apparently, I've totally deviated and forgot a very important question. Tricia, yeah. let's maybe learn about you real quick before we dive further into this. Maybe tell listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living. I know you mentioned you're a chef, and uh, what kind of hobbies do you do? 
So uh, I'm 35. I live in Dallas. I am divorced. Uh, I have no kids. I am a chef by trade, uh, but I'm a business owner. I spend most of my time running the business and not so much the cooking anymore. Oh, and my business, it's, it's a very nutritionally focused business. Like it's prepared meals that, that adhere to a paleo diet. So my whole brand that I've created is nutrition. And uh, that part of the diet does not involve alcohol. So that was another tough thing that I always struggled with was the amount of booze I was taking in and then pretending like I was representing this healthy brand. What I like to do for fun, I'm a big runner. I've always been a runner. I mean, Texas isn't the most outdoorsy kind of, you know, we don't have a lot available to us. There's not really so much hiking and skiing and stuff like that, but and then anything I can do outside, outside of Texas, you know, skiing, snowboarding, surfing, hiking, all of those I love. And I'm also really crafty. I like to knit. I like to cross stitch like gangster rap lyrics and give them to gifts. <laughs> give them to my friends as gifts. Whoa, give me um, an example. Well, I had a friend who went through a really bad breakup. She and her fiance broke up. So I cross stitched in like old English letters with like red roses all around it. It just said, I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Oh my God. I love it. Yeah. You know, so I have friends who were trying to get pregnant. So I did one that said, you know, I don't see nothing wrong with a little bump and grind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Is that R. Kelly? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not a player. I just crush a lot. I can see that on something. (laughs) That's fantastic. That's amazing. I think those would sell like hotcakes online. Have you ever thought about doing that? Yeah, you know, that's a big Etsy thing, but uh, I have other things in my life that sort of take priority right now. They're very time-consuming, but maybe if I can assemble a team of elves and train them how to do it, I could sell more of them. Sure. You know, it's interesting, when you just asked me now what I like to do for fun, I didn't really have an answer to that, uh, you know, a month and a half ago. Because when people would say, especially, you know, like on with dating, people would say, well, what do you like to do for fun? And aside from work, I like to drink. That was my only hobby. I, that was just the only thing that ever came to mind. So it's really nice when people ask me that question now. I have answers that don't involve booze. Yeah, and I know what you mean. When I first quit drinking, it felt like the time of my life when your mom, when you're a kid, you're like eight years old, and your mom just signs you up for everything. It's like, hey, Paul, tomorrow you have a, you're, you're playing in a racquetball tournament. I'm like, really? Thanks, thanks, mom. Like, I had to try a ton of stuff in, in early sobriety. In some of the stuff, I'd say, well, did it done? Not for me. And some of the other stuff, like I bought a mountain bike. That's been really cool. I think I went mountain biking you know, like 15 times this summer. And I, my dog and I go all the time. But I don't know what you mean. It's, what do you like to do for fun? Well, I'd like to get shit-faced on 40 Tuesday night. And, uh, oh, yeah, sober activities. Good question. I don't know yet. Yeah, it was really boring for a while. I like to drink martinis alone while watching Broadway musicals and vacuuming. I mean, who's going to want to date her? <laughs> <laughs> It's not a rhetorical question, listeners. I mean, I want to jump in and answer that, but I, I also don't want to lead this, this podcast interview down that road as well. Um, all right, so uh, let's switch tones. When was your bottom? My bottom? So <laughs> a serious had... question, but you can answer it how you'd like. No, it's fine. And also, if you can't laugh at this, I mean, you're missing out. You know, you have to laugh at it sometimes. Yes, that's a big value bomb right there. When was your bottom? And we're going we're gonna to cue like really uh, sad and devastating music on the back end okay. of this. So right. keep that it in mind. Uh, I was what you call a high bottom. I didn't ever have any run-ins with the law. Thankfully, no DWIs, although I certainly qualify for many of them. I 
reached my bottom a month and a half ago after yet another three-day binge where I would just start, you know, start drinking on a Friday and feel like crap Saturday, start drinking to feel better. That would continue and do a day full of drinking and then going out that night, wake up on Sunday, feel terrible, get up, have hangover brunch, continue drinking, you know, drink wine all day, have champagne at night, wake up. I mean, it was just, that was starting to become my normal um, way of drinking. So the last time I did that, I've always been a very high functioning alcoholic. You know, if I was hungover, I was going to make sure that everybody knew I wasn't and I was going to be extra productive the next day. I was going to host a brunch for 20 people. I was going to go do yard work. I was going to go for a run. Admitting to the world that I had a problem was my biggest fear. So on the outside, if I was drunk, I needed to make it known to everybody around me, my family, my friends, my employees, that no, I'm fine. I got this. So when it hit bottom was uh, I woke up on a Monday after three days of drinking. I had a terrible hangover and I couldn't shake it off. I couldn't go pretend to be a normal person. All I could do was lay on the couch until about nine o'clock that night. And that night while I was sleeping, I was just, I had my first physical withdrawals. I was sweating while I slept. I woke up, I had a fever, I was shaking. I thought maybe I had a kidney infection or something. And it turns out, no, that was just my kidney like screaming out in pain, my, my internal organs hurt. I, I was cold and shaky and had a fever all day. I didn't know what was going on. And the next day it slowly started to go away and it dawned on me, those are my first physical withdrawals. The amount that I was drinking, I mean, I'm pint sized. I mean, I'm 5'3 and you know, size four max. The amount of booze that I was drinking for somebody my size is obscene. And the fact that it took me that long to get to physical withdrawals is, is some kind of weird miracle. In episode 86, I did a podcast called The Three Most Dangerous Words an Alcohol Can Say, which are, I got this. I heard you say it earlier a couple minutes ago. But yeah, you're like, you know what? I, I, I got this. And regardless of if you're drinking or if you're sober, the instant you tell yourself those words, because I've been sober for long durations in the past, and I say, you know what? I got this. And guess what happens later? A relapse. That's usually what comes. Yeah. And so how did you reach the conclusion that maybe you don't got this? You know, the first night of that last three-day bender, I went on a party bus. It was for an old friend of mine. I've known him for 20 years. And it was for his birthday. His wife had organized this big party bus with, you know, plan. It was all around drinking. You know, everybody had, you know, sitters for their kids. And, like, we're going to have champagne and whiskey on the bus. We're going to go have dinner, you know, across town. We're going to go to a bar. The whole night was about drinking. The two weeks leading up to this, I was so anxious and nervous about it. I knew that when I drank, I never knew what was going to happen. I was blacking out all the time. Sometimes it was after three drinks. Sometimes it was after 12. So being on this party bus made me really nervous because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I tried to regulate my drinking that whole night. I drank a lot of water at dinner, had some champagne on the bus, had some wine at dinner, went to a bar, had a drink. Don't remember anything after that. You know, woke up the next morning in my bed safely, my shoes on the counter, completely unscathed, but my legs black and blue, covered in in bruises. I I don't know where I fell, how many times I fell, how I got home, but I did safely. Do you think it could have been a mechanical bull? Hmm, either that or the pole in the bus. I'm not sure, Hmm. you know. Both both of them will do it, yeah. No, uh, I mean, I've always been a very a very boring drunk. I don't get super showy, 
But I also, gravity always wins. Gravity just, and I don't agree when I'm drinking. And I love to wear really, I'm, I'm short, so I love to rock some, you know, four or five inch heels. You know, you mix 90 drinks and five inch Jimmy Choo's and you're going to fall down some stairs. It's just inevitable. Physics, so, yep. Physics, yeah. Physics wins. So I'm sorry I forgot the original question. <laughs> what was <laughs> Kind of what, uh... I think it's like, when did you realize that you don't got it? Yeah, pretty much when, when I was blacking out most of the time, especially when I didn't mean to. And yeah, when, when the physical withdrawals happened, I mean, your I only have one body and it's a small body. And at a certain point, you can't negotiate with alcohol anymore. It's going to do to your body what you're letting it do. So I think at that point I realized like, you know, shit was getting real. And I needed to really clean up my act because I didn't want it to get any worse. And this will kill you. You mentioned earlier that you, you pre you're previously married. Do you think alcohol played a role in, in that outcome? Yes and no. I, was, I wasn't the type of drunk who would, you know, get in a fight or get emotional. I've always been a pretty chill person. My ex-husband and I were both big drinkers, though. When we did get into arguments, alcohol was always involved. But I wouldn't say that my problem at that point was so bad that, you know, that he would start affairs with other women because of it, which is what happened. I, that, there were other issues that ended the marriage. Now, going back to like me pretending like I, um, I got this and I'm a high-functioning alcoholic, I've always been that way ever since I started drinking when I was 16. My, my older, I mean, I wasn't supposed to be an alcoholic. My older brother is a junkie and alcoholic. He was the one who the family all focused on him and his problems. You know, I went to culinary school. He went to Hazelden a couple of times. It was just, we were on very different paths. So I grew up being your typical codependent, overachieving, overly ambitious, perfect daughter and sibling and trying to overcompensate for the mess that my brother was always making. So my view of alcohol at the time was, oh, this is bad. Alcohol is bad. It's a problem. And it's, and it's shameful. So when I did start drinking, I would sort of do it and not even enjoy it. There was this always a secret guilt because I knew what it could get to. That's where the, I got this feeling started is because I needed to make sure that everyone knew I was fine. I got this. I can totally function. So even if I was drunk or hungover growing up, you know, whatever relationship I was in or even my marriage, I always needed to make sure that everybody knew I didn't have a problem. You know, I'm not going to jail. You know, I'm still keeping my job. I'm not going to work late. I'm not getting in fights with people. I had to make sure everybody knew everything was fine, which ultimately progressed this problem and just, which just made it take longer to get here. Now, when you decided to quit drinking, how did you do it? How'd you get day one, day two, and day three? I didn't know I was going to quit. I hadn't planned on it. You know, when I got through those first two hellacious days of being hungover and then having physical withdrawals, I didn't know that this was it. I woke up going, okay, you need to quit for a little while. I would always do that. Like, okay, you need to just take a couple of weeks off, see how you feel. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I've tried to take a couple of weeks off like every couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I got home one night and I start. I was like, I'm gonna listen to some recovery podcasts and just, you know, see how that feels. And I don't know, I found yours. Yours was one of the first one I, I, I pushed and dialed into. And 
I don't know which interview it was, but the person had been sober for maybe 90 days. And I, it was like everything that she said, I was like, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, that's what I do. Oh, I say the same things. Oh my God, I've done those same things too. I'd never heard my story come from anybody else's mouth. And in that moment, I realized, okay, I'm not alone anymore. I don't have to do this alone. There's other people out there like me. And there's other people out there like me who are high functioning and pretend like everything is fine. I was under the impression that if you have a problem, that meant you had DWIs, that you were homeless in the gutter, that you'd you know, thrown away your relationships and marriages. And that's not the case at all. So many of us are really good at being alcoholics and pretending like everything is fine until it's not. I think that not knowing I was going to quit was actually a, a benefit for me. For people who plan on it, maybe they are going to plan that one last drunk, like one last hurrah. I didn't do that. My last drunk was, it was fun, but coming down from it was not. And that's the memory I want to keep is my last. I don't want to have any sort of celebratory last hurrah. I want to keep the horrible memory of what it really felt like the last time I went on a three-day bender. So I think that just surprising myself and realizing like, okay, this is happening right now and just throwing myself into recovery is what helped. It put less pressure on me. You know, when you make a decision and you say, I'm going to quit drinking today, that's, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And then inevitably, if you fail, you feel even worse. I think just sort of surprising myself with going, okay, we're going to try this and see how it goes really worked in my favor. Yeah, in my opinion, it's almost like you tricked your unconscious mind. I do a podcast about cognitive dissonance, and that's where we wake up in the morning and say, I'm done drinking for the rest of my life. That is our conscious mind. We are speaking, we're saying it to ourselves, but our unconscious mind, it doesn't get that memo. Sounds like with your case, you just kind of like, you know, pulled a fast one on your unconscious mind and just didn't drink. You didn't necessarily make the decision. It just happened. And another thing I want to touch up upon what you said is when you listen to that woman's story who had 90 days, you're like, wow, I've never heard anybody else say my exact story. That tells me where you're at in your journey, you're ready to quit drinking because I've heard my story to a T, but I focus on the differences. I was like, nope, nope. First off, that guy's name is Rick, lives in <laughs> Mississippi, like not even close. Good news is I'm not an alcoholic, not the yes. case. So congratulations. That's pretty cool there. And Trisha, with 32 days of sobriety, walk me through a day of Trisha. How are you doing it? Now, you're probably experimenting, putting together your own program, but how do you stay sober each day? Well, the biggest part for me right now is going to AA meetings. Listening to that podcast, that first one, that first RE one with the girl who really spoke to me, she mentioned going to AA. And I heard that and thought, oh, hell no. no <laughs> oh, way. hell no. There's no way I'm joining that cult. I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid. Uh-uh. And by the end of it, I was like, all right, maybe I'll give it a shot. Like, you know, I'm a knowledge seeker and I'm, and I'm not too proud to go, hey, I want to find out about something just to see if it's useful for me. And that night that I listened to that podcast, I looked it up and I found a meeting in walkable distance from my apartment and I went to a meeting that night. I remember texting a friend of mine who I had spoken with earlier and said, I think I'm going to go to AA. What's the harm in just finding out what it's about, right? Like to me, that was, you know, kind of taking some of the pressure off of it. Like, I don't have to stay if I don't want to. You get free coffee too. You get free coffee. 
Well, so I walk into this church and it took me, I mean, first of all, I'm listening to your podcast in my headphones on the way there to like, just get me through the door and just sort of distracting me and trying to take away some of the anxiety. I'm walking around this church trying to find the door to get in. And I finally find a door and there's an elevator and it feels like a labyrinth. And I get up the elevator and there's a police officer in there. And I said, where's the meeting? And she said, oh, it's just down the hall. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm almost here. I'm almost here. I walk into this room and there's a table with like brie and pastries and all these amazing snacks and coffee and water. And I'm like, sweet, like I picked the right meeting. And there's all these grown men in really expensive suits. And I'm like, wow, these are rich alcoholics. You know, and everybody's like real professional. And I'm like, this is not what I expected. So I sit down and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then one of the gentlemen comes up to me and shakes my hand and he said, uh, hi, so, you know, what unit are you in? And I said, excuse me? And he said, what unit are you in? And I said, I'm sorry, this is my first time here. I don't think I know what you're talking about. And then another guy walks over and they both just kind of stare at me like, huh? Then a woman comes up and she looks at me and she goes, this is an HOA meeting. Are you here for the HOA meeting? And I said, oh, no, I'm not. I'm in the wrong meeting. And she said, what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm here for a different meeting. And, wow. and I'm trying not to say it because this is my first time even going to AA. Like, I am scared to death right now. So she said, I, she goes, okay, I think I know what meeting you're talking about. Let me help you find it. So we go out. There's a church employee. And this foyer is full of people here for their HOA meeting. There's just dripping in Chanel and pearls and diamonds and everybody's loaded, not loaded, like boozy, like everyone's really just sure. rich in Dallas and snobby. And uh, so she says to a church employee, where's the other meeting? And he said, it was canceled because of the, the HOA meeting. And I'm like, shit, oh, I made it all the way here. And she goes, no, the other meeting. And he goes, he says to this whole room, oh, the AA meeting. And oh, love it. The room goes silent. Everybody stops what they're doing and looks at the poor little alcoholic in her Pearl Jam hoodie, like looking forlorn. And I'm absolutely mortified. And he walks me to the right meeting and I show up 10 minutes late to my first AA meeting. But really, I was 10 years late. So, I mean, what's the difference? Wow. What anyway. you said there. Yeah. Really, you were 10 <laughs> years late. Yeah. So that being said, after that meeting, a, a huge weight was taken off my off of my shoulders just by admitting it out loud. I'm an alcoholic and I'm not alone here. So I totally drank the Kool-Aid. AA is a huge part of my recovery. And just the b being able to connect with other alcoholics is what is keeping me sober and will continue to keep me sober. Whether that's going to a meeting or getting on Facebook and logging into the RE um, cafe and just talking to other alcoholics. Connection with other people and not feeling alone is the utmost important part of my recovery. Boom. That is the utmost important part for a lot of people's recovery, including my own. It's really the community is the most important component of how I'm staying sober these days. And Trisha, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Worst memory from drinking is, God, so many... I think my worst memory was probably everything I don't remember. You know, waking up and not knowing what happened is a very startling, frightening feeling, uh, especially when your body is covered in bruises. So anytime I woke up after a blackout with, with like physical injuries, or I woke up in my bed and found out that like an ambulance had been called for me the night before, those are, those are probably my, my least favorite drinking memories. Definitely. 
Now, did you ever have an aha moment indicating that uh, oh, maybe I can't control my alcohol? Yes. The last weekend of drinking was I my number one you know, priority that night was making sure that I controlled my alcohol so I didn't get out of hand. I was there alone. Everybody there had a spouse. I didn't have anyone to take care of me. And I had to make sure I didn't black out or fall or hurt myself. I drank iced tea and water half the night, but I still blacked out. And Trisha, you got 32 days of sobriety. What's your plan yeah. moving forward? How are you going to get 33, 34, two months, maybe even nigh three months? I have a routine. I get up in the morning after I take care of the dog because she comes first. I mean, I come first, but it's 6 a.m. The dog comes first. <laughs> Once I'm done with the dogs, I just sit and have a quiet moment and read pages 66 through 68, or excuse me, 86 through 88 in the big book. And, you know, remind myself that there's a lot of things in my life that are not in my control and just sit and meditate on that and just ask to like be reminded to pause during the day and not make rash decisions to be patient. And also, you know, I'm not a religious person. That was a big thing that kept me from going to AA because I didn't want to have to talk about God. I mean, I'm a recovering Catholic. So like anything organized religion makes me feel really grody inside. So to me, in order to get to that quiet spiritual place in the morning, like I have to listen to this pop song that came out in the late 80s that Prince wrote for this singer named Martika. Like it's a, basically a prayer and a song. And yeah, it's like this dumb pop song, you know, in, from the 80s. But that really takes me to a really quiet place where I can just spend five minutes planning my day. Also, I've been some awesome books have been recommended to me, both with your book club recommendations for Recovery Elevator and some books uh, given to me by my sponsors. So reading Tara Brock's book, Radical Acceptance, is uh, also a big part of my morning, just reading through that and highlighting notes. And, and What is it called? It. Tara Brock? Called, uh, yeah, Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H. She is a, a Buddhist monk, and uh, so it's called Radical Acceptance, Embracing Your Life with the Heart of a Buddha. Huh. And it's just spiritual sort of guidance that that exist in most religions, most spiritual, you know, trains of thought, and also are very helpful with, with recovery. Nice. There we go. And if you could narrow it down to one resource, what's your favorite resource in recovery, not cafe RE recovery elevator related? We took away the good one. Um, <laughs> that's a really good one. You know, probably, I mean, I guess my meetings, my AA meetings, I've got two that I go to. I love going and connecting with those people. Everybody's got different levels of sobriety and I can usually walk away taking, taking one thing out of that meeting. Even if it's not the best meeting, I can always find one thing to take with me. So again, just connecting with other alcoholics, most important. Yeah. For me, for sure. Take what you want and leave the rest. I love it. Now we're yeah. going to compile these next two questions into one. Trisha, what's the best advice you've ever received in regards to sobriety? And what advice can you give to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking? You know, the best advice was given to me by my older brother. You know, he's recovered. He's got over a year under his, under his belt of sobriety. He's clean and sober after a 25-year battle with drugs and alcohol. He was the first person I told that I had a problem. And he said, forget everything you think you know. Keep an open mind. And I couldn't put it better myself. People go into sobriety thinking, no, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. I think that the best way to do anything is to forget everything you think you know and just keep an open mind. Then you're limitless. And then for anybody who wants to try to quit drinking, 
you absolutely can't do it alone. You've got to tell people around you. You've got to, even if it's telling one person every couple of days, a friend or a family member, keep yourself accountable. Don't keep it a secret. Uh, if it's a secret, it's not real. So make it real. Talk to people and ask for help because there are a lot of people who want to help you. I want to summarize those value bombs for you listeners right there. Number one is forget everything you know. That's basically you can't think your way through this problem. In fact, the ironic part about it is the less you think about it, the better you're going to do, which to me is just mind-boggling when I thought about that. And the other one is is you can't do this alone. We've all tried it. Trisha, you've tried it. I tried it for about two and a half years. My knuckles were pretty white the entire time. It's difficult. You can't do it alone. And Trisha, we have reached the last question of the interview. Give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line. I've got two. I've got two good ones. One is you might be an alcoholic if you think you might be an alcoholic, for sure. And the other one is you might be an alcoholic if you have to drink to do daily mundane tasks. You might be an alcoholic if you have to put vodka in your water bottle to go work out with your trainer. Yes, three for three on that one. Those all qualify pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Trisha, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator Podcast. Very much appreciated. Thank you. My pleasure. On Sunday, January 22nd at 4 p.m., I will be speaking at This Is My Brave. This is going to take place at the Moss Theater at 313 Olympic Boulevard in Santa Monica. You can get tickets at bfrb.org forward slash mybraveLA. It's going to be a quick five to seven minute talk about mental illness and how alcoholism has played a role in that in my life. I highly encourage you to attend this event and stick around afterward. I'd love to chat with you in person. Before we depart today, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to answer it just for yourself, but answer it honestly. How much does alcohol play a role in your life? If you're sober right now, you can say, how much did alcohol play a role in your life? Think about it for a second. I can tell you from firsthand experience, alcohol dictated where I lived, where I ate, who I hang out with, where I worked, what I did for fun, what kind of clothes I wore, seriously, if I wore shoes or not. I'm joking on that one, except for a couple nights. Ask yourself, who's really in control of your life? Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 